0: The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily.
2: The waiting is over. Today we have lift off on a brand new Premier League season. The 21-22 campaign is upon us as Brentford versus Arsenal kicks things off tonight. How will the Bees fare in the top flight for the first time since the 1940s? And will Arsenal return to the European stage come May after their first season in 25 years without European football? Those endeavours begin tonight at the Brentford Community Stadium talk of title contenders this season too involved Chelsea even before they signed Romelu Lukaku now the big man is back at the bridge for a cool 97 million pounds is the Belgian a better player since he was last on English soil and how much of a boost does his arrival give Chelsea's championship credentials and from West London to East it could be a busy boardroom at West Ham in the coming months reports suggest a bid has been lodged to take over the club but will there be a new hierarchy at the Ham or will the gritty gold and stubborn Sullivan remain in charge? All of that to come on the first Football Social Daily of a brand new season. We are the only Premier League podcast with a new episode seven days a week, every day of the season. So if you don't want to miss a thing when it comes to the cut and thrust of the English top flight, then why not hit subscribe now? Alongside me today, feeling like kids at Christmas, Marley Anderson and Jim Salverson. How are you doing,
0: lads? Uh, Yeah, very good. Thank you. Not too bad. Waiting for this to come back. Uh, tonight, I feel like we've gone absolutely ages without any football. And, <laughs> you know, and I just it's just filling that void in my life. What, what about you,
2: Jim? Excited for the new season? It's crept up on us, hasn't it?
1: I am. I'm actually quite excited for the new season. It felt like it was much too early after the Euros, but now we're actually on the eve of it happening. I'm quite excited about our opening game against your lot. Newcastle, Marley on Sunday. I have to say though, with your description of David Gold and Sullivan, I've got a few more descriptive terms than gritty (laughs) that I could use.
2: (laughs) I mean, there are a few swear words I could have used, but that would have made the editing (laughs) an absolute ball ache and too many bleeps early doors in the first podcast of the season. I think we'll save those harboured feelings for a little bit later on in the podcast gym, when we will be talking about the West Ham takeover, but let's begin at the beginning of a new season, Brentford versus Arsenal, 8pm kickoff tonight is the curtain raiser on the 2021-22 Premier League season. An interesting game, not just because it's the first of the season, but also because there's plenty of unknowns here on both sides of the coin, both for Brentford and for Arsenal. And let's start with the new boys, Brentford, the bees of West London. How do you think they'll fare this season, Marley? Because as I said before, it's their first campaign in the top flight since just after the Second World War. And really, they've been knocking on the door of the Premier League for the last couple of seasons. But again, if you rewind the clock a little bit longer than that, they were in League 2 and League 1 not that long ago. We've spoken about them when they got promoted on the podcast, but now that the season is upon us, how do you think they'll do this season?
0: Um, I, I, They're a complete unknown quantity, really. Because we've seen teams that play nice football come up to the top flight and it not quite work. Um, and we've seen teams that don't play the best football... Come up and it not quite work, and also sometimes it still works. Like you see, Burnley all them years ago, they played the same way for. Is it coming up eight years now? Um, And they're still knocking around in the Premier League, so it's not as if you have to play nice football and keep the ball on the floor and have sixty percent possession every game to uh, to stay in the Premier League. But they do, and it's makes them. I think it's going to win them a lot of fans over the course of this season. Um, The only thing I do think is i just i just worry about the lack of quality um the lack of sort of big names that can carry them through games there's a lot of pressure on Ivan Toni up front um i've watched a bit of that in Buemo last last year and i think he's he's bang average if i'm honest um the center backs are okay you pontus jansen will pick up a lot of yellow cards and start a lot of fights and cause a lot of issues at, uh, with with opposing strikers because he's one of those players that just Gives a hundred percent all the time, kind of like Mitrovic, but at centre back, um, where you don't know whether he's going to have a great game or just just sort of get booked and, and start a scrap. That's
2: probably a good thing if he's like Mitrovic and he's a centre half, because that means there'll well, be no goals going in, <laughs> basically. You, you
0: definitely expect that. You you want Pontus Janssen on your team if you're uh, if you're if you're having a fight. Um, that's definitely for sure. And they've got Christopher Ayer alongside him now as well, so I feel like they've strengthened centre back nicely. Um... I've always thought David Raya in goal is is useless. I've always thought he's he's really really weak compared to other goalkeepers that have came up. I kind of expected them to buy a new goalkeeper this summer, but I don't think they have. Um, so yeah, I think that their philosophy needs to be a lot better um, than the sum of their parts kind of thing. We, we we've seen it before, and we'll probably see it again where teams are sort of overperforming, and the um, the, the individuals they have sort of gel together in a in a really good sort of team unit and it works um and we're going to have to see that again from Brentford because their their um task is is quite large I would say
2: What's your take on Brentford then, Jim? Because I've seen a lot of people tipping them for an immediate return to the championship. But I think Marley described them quite nicely as an unknown quantity. Because if you think back to Sheffield United a couple of years ago, I know they've gone back down now. But that first season under Chris Wilder where they came in with the system that they've been playing that no one had really seen before, the overlapping centre-halves, that system that kind of caught a few by surprise. And Sheffield United ended up finishing in the top 10 in their first season back in the Premier League and then second season they went down, whereas Norwich came up with everyone knowing that they play attractive football, and a similar thing happened. They got relegated straight away. So is it difficult to tell what we think Brentford might do this time?
1: Yeah, I think Marley called it well that they are an unknown quantity, and I was going to compare them to Sheffield United, actually, because you could easily see them finishing, maybe not 10th, I think that's a bit of a stretch. It's very rare that that happens for a promoted team, but you could certainly see them finishing maybe 13th, 14th, something like that, and equally you could see him finishing rock bottom with a world like a record lack of points. So they are a bit of an unknown quantity, which I think has been added to by the way football was last season during lockdown because I think. As a Premier League fan, as a fan of a Premier League team, I'm very guilty, particularly over the last 12 months, of not necessarily paying much attention to football outside of the Premier League because there was so much Premier League football to watch and consume because all the games were being broadcast live. So I paid less attention to the championship than I have done in previous seasons. So I feel like in terms of how I talk about Brentford, I know very little about them and the way they play other than the generalities of they do play decent football. They have this really interesting, quite clever Moneyball-esque recruitment scheme as well, and they've got Ivan Tony up front who bangs in the goals, and that's kind of it, to be honest with you. The one thing I would say is my concern for Brentford is the what the recruitment they have done over the summer, because they haven't bought in that many players. They've not bought in players with Premier League experience. That, as we know from previously promoted teams, you kind of need that Premier League experience in there. But that said, the big caveat to that is they have been excellent in their recruitment so far in their climb up the leagues and their how competitive they've been in the championship over the last few seasons. So we've not seen that kind of approach, the kind of stats-driven moneyball approach in the Premier League before. So who knows whether that will work with the players they've brought in. But my gut says when you're bringing in players from Celtic and Mitchell and Lorient as they have done over the summer, They're not the players that are going to significantly increase the quality of your squad and keep you in what will be a really competitive Premier League this season.
2: I'm going to counterpunch that by saying almost exactly what you just said in terms of their recruitment over the years. That's not counterpunching, that's just agreeing. (laughs) I'll counterpunch you now by saying they bought Ollie Watkins and he adapted to the Premier League when he signed for Aston Villa. They bought Neil Mopé, who I don't think has particularly adapted well at Brighton, but he is now a Premier League player. In terms of what they do have up front, Jim, they do have Ivan Tony, 33 goals in the championship last season, which is a record in the championship as it's known now since it's been called the championship. So basically since 2004, but it's not a record for the second tier, but you get one hinting at there they have a a good striker in terms of the questions over whether tony can adapt to the premier league can he cut it in the top flight you'd have to suggest that with his confidence and with his goal scoring record that he's got a decent chance
1: yeah you're not rubbish if you score 33 goals in the championship it's an incredibly difficult league to play in and you have to be physical you have to be strong but you need to have all the skills that you need as a Premier League striker as well and as you say we've seen players come from Brentford previously I'd add Saber and Rama to that list as well who of course was all right at West Ham last season but seems to be coming in his own in pre-season I think he's got a good season ahead of him so you would back Ivan Tony to bang in the goals for Brentford but it's 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 kind of a squad mentality it's that squad experience of playing in the Premier League it's those old war horses those people who know how the league work that it, it feels to me that you kind of need within your squad if you're going to do well. Ivan Tony does have some Premier League experience, by the way. Mm. He played 12 minutes for Newcastle United in the 2015-16 season. So he's not a complete newbie to the league. But I think but I spoke Tony... to
2: Marley about this and Marley said he was dreadful back then. Is that right, Marley?
0: Yeah, he he wasn't dreadful. He was just v- incredibly raw. Like He was nowhere near the, the player he is now. He's just a, a typical example of somebody who just desperately needed to go out and play football and, and find a home. Um, and sort of flourish himself, and fair play to him. He's, he's worked really hard, and he's he's getting the fruits of, of what he's put in now. Um, he's worth thirty million quid or whatever it was linked with with moves over the summer. Obviously, did because Brentford came up, um, and he broke broke all the records, the goal scoring records in the championship. So you know, fair play to him.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting situation that Brentford find themselves in. I guess survival, Jim, is just the key goal, isn't it?
1: I think for any team coming up into the Premier League, your season one aim is survival. If you can finish 17th, then that is a great result for your first season. But you take what you take, and if they can finish higher, they will be absolutely delighted. And there are a lot of teams in the Premier League that are going to find themselves battling for the bottom this season. I think, although the top half of the Premier League has really strengthened, I think the bottom half of the Premier League has arguably got weaker. And you're going to see teams like Brighton And Southampton and Burnley and probably West Ham with their European campaign and their lack of recruitment. You're going to see all them in amongst that mix at the wrong end of the league this season. So they could get lucky. They could end up staying up. But obviously we'll get a real sense of exactly how they're going to do when they play tonight.
2: Well Brentford against Arsenal the curtain raiser we've discussed the new boys the Bees what about Arsenal never been relegated from the top flight record FA Cup winners with 13 titles to their name but the last time they won the league was in 2004 they were the invincibles. They didn't lose a game throughout the entire season. Since then, they've had a new stadium and they were a regular top four side under Arsene Wenger. But since then, it seems to have unraveled a little bit and they're still trying to find their way back to where they once were. Now Mikel Arteta at the helm. So what are Arsenal's goals this season, Mali? We said at the top of the show, this is their first campaign without European football for a quarter of a century I mean, that just goes to show the standards that Arsenal have set themselves in recent times. Do you think that that will be a help to them this season in their in their quest to get back into Europe?
0: Um, yeah, I, th- I think it should, to be honest. I think the one thing I'm, I'm almost like tempted to write Arsenal off um, because I don't think they've... They've got their squad to uh, break into that top six picture, even though that's their that's their sort of remit this season. That's what they've got to try and do. Um, but the one thing that's stopping me doing that is their form at the end of last season. And I don't know whether it was down to other teams being rubbish and taking a bit of a holiday, but I think they won seven out of the last eight games, Arsenal. And it was as soon as they went out the Europa League, they started putting wins together and, and actually looking much better. So I don't know whether it, they burnt out last season or they got sort of the run of the green with with other teams thinking well we we've got nothing to play for so i've i've always sort of there's always hope for arsenal because you know at some point they can they can turn it on and they can find that that sort of top um like sort of fourth or fifth gear where they look very very good but more often than not, they stole the car and they're, they're finishing like the starting games poorly, they're conceding silly goals, they're not scoring enough, they're, they're getting the wrong formation week in, week out, and they end up, you know, flirting around mid-table. And like, This is a massive... I'd say this is probably the most important season in Arsenal's last 35, 40 years, I would say. I can't remember what they were like in the 80s because I wasn't alive, but... Um, in, uh, in, you know, since since I've been alive, obviously, you know, they were challenging for leagues and always winning cups or whatever. And now they're, they're without Europe. Um, it's the third or second, well, Arteta's what, two and a half seasons in now. Um, he needs to really perform this season because if they don't, and if they finish ninth or 10th again, I don't think he's got any excuses. I think he's had time to build his squad. Um, He's had time to pick a formation and and stick to it and and find out what's best. And if he doesn't do it this season, he simply hasn't done it. So Mm. I find it hard to make a case for him to stay.
2: We have hammered Arsenal on this podcast in the past, Jim. Deservedly. Rightly so, I would agree with you. In terms of what Marley's just said for Mikel Arteta and his future at Arsenal Football Club, If they get off to a bad start, and let's just say they're in a similar position at Christmas as to what they were last year, not really anywhere near the top half of the Premier League table. And I think, did they finish 8th or ninth in the end? I think it was 8th they finished. If that's still the case come Christmas, you know, is the Grim Reaper going to be stalking Mikel Arteta? Because it feels like everyone wants him to do well and he's a nice enough bloke and he's got these ideas. But in terms of time and what a club like Arsenal expects, if they don't get off to a good start... Is that death knell going to come tolling for Mikel Arteta?
1: It's really difficult to tell, I think, because logic would say yes. And I think the pressure is on for Arsenal from day one. I think from tonight's game, they need to get off to a flyer to keep the fans happy. And it is a poisonous fan base at Arsenal. We know that they don't like to give new managers time. We know they are hypercritical of any performance, even if it comes one loss in the midst of a 10 game-winning streak, they are right on the manager's back. So if the Arsenal fans were making the decisions as to who stays and who goes, I don't think Arteta would be there now. I think he would have been kicked to the curb last season when they were having their relegation battle, inverted commas. That said, I think the Arsenal board have got a certain amount of faith in Arteta to deliver at some point. And I think the understanding it would appear they have with the manager is this is a project and it is progress, and they are a club that requires a little bit of stability and a little bit of structure, because since Arsene Wenger left, as you said, the heart got ripped out of that club, the roots got torn up, he was in control of so much of that football club, it needed to settle and it needed to reorganise, and I think they see Arteta as the man to lead that kind of revolution, if you like. So, I mean, it's difficult to know what the expectations for Arsenal are this season, because nobody has been talking about them, in terms of a top four place. I don't think many people have even been considering them in terms of a top six place. When we were picking our potential top fours, Leicester was more commonly in the mix than Arsenal. So I don't know what the exact expectations are this season. You'd think Europa League football and potentially a cup run were probably what they're looking at in terms of achieving, which seems a ridiculous thing to say for Arsenal Football Club. But how tolerant will the board be if they don't achieve that? I think they might be okay with it. I think they see it as a project and they see it as a development. So I think Arteta is going to be given a little bit more time as long as the Arsenal fans don't get too angsty and when they're back in the stadium that could add extra pressure as well.
2: Are they good enough for top four?
1: No. No. I think it's quite clear they're not because you look at the additions they've made in the tournament. They weren't good enough last season. Nowhere near good enough for top four last season. You look at the players they bought in and the players they've got out probably the pick of the bunch the players they've brought in is Ben White who I actually think is a pretty solid addition but as we've seen defenders that go into the Arsenal defence often forget how to defend for their time at the club so it'll be interesting to see how he gets on but they're not but they're not significantly better than they were last season they haven't made enough progress in terms of transfers in whereas the other teams around them have pretty much all strengthened so I think that kind of answers the question
2: No Champions League for Arsenal since 2017. The last four seasons before now, Europa League... This season, no European football at all. It is a slippery slope, they say. Brentford against Arsenal against 8pm tonight. But a new season, you never really know what the first weekend of results are going to bring. That game starts at the Brentford Community Stadium tonight. Looking forward to that one. And we'll be discussing all of the weekend's Premier League fixtures on our preview show, which will be out tomorrow morning. So as we say, hit subscribe and that way you won't miss a single episode. Brand new content from us here at the Sports Social seven days a week throughout the Premier League campaign. Time to take a quick break now. And afterwards, we'll be talking about Chelsea because they've brought Romelu Lukaku back to the club in their bid to try and regain the Premier League title. We'll talk about it next here on Football Social Daily.
0: Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.
2: Welcome back to Football Social Daily, and it's a welcome back to Romelu Lukaku at Chelsea. He's back at the bridge, £97 million, a Chelsea club record. We talk about the big deals that have taken place this summer, Marley, £97 million is a lot of money for any club to spend. And strangely enough, even though Chelsea do like to get the checkbook out, that is the most they've ever spent on a player. It's a player they've had before. We've discussed it in fits and starts on the podcast in recent weeks. Has he earned that price tag? Is he worth that 97 million pounds in your opinion? Uh
0: yeah, I, th- I think he has. Um I still think he's is a good age, you know. I think he's 28 now. He's he's in his prime, you would say. Um he's coming off the back of probably the, one of the best seasons of his life, if not the best, winning the Italian league, um ending Juventus' dominance of of that league. I think they won nine in a row before Inter into went and um, usurped them, sort of thing. So, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, you buy you buy a good team's best player. You expect to, you know, a league champions' best player. You, you could argue, you know, you expect to play pay close to 100 million quid. And there's that guarantee of him having scored a lot of goals in in the Premier League. I think he's got something like 107, 108 goals or something like that. So, he's um he's, he's proven. He comes with a bit of a guarantee. Um, the question is. Can he, can he can he do it like like he didn't do in his later stages at Man United he, he did look like a calamity at Man United in his later stages. Um, and I know he, he gets stick and, and sometimes people say, you know well look how good he is now and you should never have given him stick back then. but the reality is he was awful back then in the final stages at Man United in the last season and a half, he was terrible. Couldn't control a bag of cement. He couldn't hold the ball up. He couldn't dribble. He couldn't pass. But since going to to Italy, it suited him perfectly. It it's re, refilled his confidence. He's now looking um, like an absolute killer in front of goal. He's scoring all types of goals as you expect from someone like Lukaku. So, you know, to to have him back is is good. I think Chelsea have now got, you know, just a ridiculous array of talent um, in those attacking positions. I don't know how. Tuchel's gonna knit them all together and keep them all happy, but
2: does that tip the scales in in terms of a balance when it comes to Chelsea winning the Premier League or making a title challenge this season? Does that one addition Lukaku to Chelsea completely change the landscape when it comes to the Blues' chances of title success?
0: Um, it, it, it certainly yeah, it certainly puts them in that race. If you didn't, if you thought they were a bit short before, you you can't say you think they're a bit short now because. You know, Chelsea didn't quite score enough goals last season. They've just gone out and, and signed a guy who scored 100 Premier League goals for 100 million quid. So, you know, that that argument has fell by the wayside immediately. Um, the only thing I would... The only sort of hindrance I would have about Chelsea and the only sort of question would be that... Have they got too many options? Like, do they know the strongest team? And how do you keep them all, all happy and, and playing? Because... You've, you've got to assume he'll he'll stick with these three at the back, so the back sort of five picks itself. But then how do they how do they play up front? Do they play two two strikers with one um, attacking midfielder in behind, or do they play two attacking midfielders in behind and one striker? Because you know Pulisic doesn't fit into the, any of those systems, I don't think, because he's a winger. Um, he'd probably be more comfortable at wing back in games where Chelsea have loads of possession, but he's not a wing back. Hudson odoi doesn't fit into that team at all, um, into those those systems. I mean, he, again, he's been used at wing back as well, but you can only use him in those games where you're going to have all the ball and not worry about defending. Um, you've got Ziek Mount and Havet all competing for an attacking midfield role, and then you've got um, you know Werner, Lukaku and even Tammy Abraham who's still there, and and Batswai is just basically a a, a well paid spectator at the minute, so. It's a it's a ridiculous amount of of talent they've got, and if I was another Premier League team, I'd be looking and saying, "Can we get Callum Hudson Odoi on loan for a year?" With with the World Cup coming up, eighteen months away, you know, six months next season is not going to be enough to get into that team, uh, into that squad. I don't think he knows Southgate likes him. He knows, you know, he got an England cap before he made his Chelsea debut, for God's sake. So, the guy is is clearly well liked at international level. I'd be looking if I was uh, if I was Leeds, Everton, Newcastle, yeah, new sort of Newcastle, um, and one of these teams, and just saying, do you fancy a year on loan playing every week? Because realistically, are you gonna play at Chelsea every week? Because I don't, I think the answer's no, and and uh, he should be looking after his own future in well immediate future anyway. So it's it's a real sort of task for Tuchel um but you know if you if you have got all them them uh, options it's almost an embarrassment of riches because you, you know you can win a game in seven or eight different ways
2: he's 28 years old romelu Lukaku he's got over 100 premier league goals he spent the last two seasons away from the premier league after he left manchester united in terms of how he's rated jim as one of the best Premier League strikers that we've seen in the modern era, do you think he doesn't get as much credit as he deserves? Particularly if he does come into Chelsea and they start winning silverware, which is obviously the aim that Thomas Tuchel and the club have got.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I don't think he gets enough credit for his time at Manchester United, to be honest with you. I think he was a much better player than he was given credit for there and I mean just look at his goal scoring record at Manchester United when he wasn't at his peak Marley's right he did have certain flaws in his game but he still scored 16 goals one season 12 goals the next which isn't a bad return it's probably not what you want for 98 million quid but it's not a bad return and I think he's pretty much as close a guarantee you can get to a striker that's going to score you 20 goals a season in the Premier League but I think he does offer something to the team and potentially his touch hasn't been as good as it could have been. And that was kind of the main flaw at Manchester United. He was getting the ball pinged into his feet. He was failing to control it. It was shooting off all over the place and he wasn't kind of holding it up for the on-rushing, attacking players. And it didn't really work out for him. But he seems to have worked on that part of his game. He's come back looking leaner, I think, for Intermalli. Maybe that's the stripes of the kit, I don't know. But he certainly looks like he's a little bit leaner <laughs> and fitter than he was at Manchester United. Um, but I've always liked him as a player. I think ever since he emerged at Chelsea and I think it potentially I mean it was a mistake to let him go to Everton in the first place he could have flourished within that Chelsea team if he was given a bit more of a chance mm. but he offers a lot he terrifies yeah, I mean defenders. he
2: had Diego Costa in front of him yeah, at the but time how good, so I mean, how, I mean that's always going to be what, difficult what a
1: perfect player for Lukaku to learn off from Diego god. Costa I can I mean,
2: imagine if if Lukaku had picked you know up I mean, Costa's nasty streak then god what what a player yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, that's it. Lukaku's almost too nice sometimes, isn't he? For a player of his size and strength, you kind of want a little bit of niggle in there. I mean, he I don't, I don't remember a single occasion he's been sent off. It's kind of he picks up a couple of yellows here and there, but that's it. And that's probably down to his size. So I think he's one of those players that terrifies whoever he comes up against. And I mean, against my team, West Ham, I seem to remember him scoring pretty much every time time he's played against us. So I, I, I think he's hugely underrated. Even for a player that actually has the highest combined transfer fee of any other player in the world at the moment, if you add together all the transfers he's made, he has earned the most money in terms of transfer fees. Even with that status, I think he's underrated and he's the type of player that will... I mean, Chelsea fans will be delighted to see him. Premier League defenders will be terrified he's back in the league because he's going to cause them all sorts of problems
2: obviously chelsea won the champions league last season so you know everyone will say that they're rich and they can afford to spend this money i just wonder whether we would have seen them spend as much on a striker like lukaku had they not won that champions league and scooped up that revenue with the price tag which uh, jim's already mentioned could be accumulatively one of the most uh, expensive players ever in terms of the amount of fees he's scooped up over his time as a pro player is there extra pressure to win trophies now? Because when he went to Manchester United, it cost £75 million. The attack in line, Marley, was pinned on Lukaku to score the goals. And he did score plenty of goals at Manchester United. But there was question marks over in the big games and in the big moments. Did he really turn up? Did he really deliver? So do you think that there is now an expectancy, a pressure on Romelu Lukaku to fire Chelsea to silverware? Because it feels like the Premier League is as competitive as it's ever been heading into this season with United strengthening, Manchester City looking as strong as always, Liverpool also in the mix. So in terms of the pressure on Lukaku now to get Chelsea some silverware again, do you think that that's increased just because of the price they've paid for him?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, you, you can't go for 100 million quid and expect there to be no pressure on you. <laughs> you know, and if you if you wilt under that pressure, it's uh, it's it's, you know, you've got no excuse really because you know you are that level of player so it is going to come with if we sign this guy he's going to get us 25 goals at least next season he's going to help us in the big games he's going to help us go further and challenge and and um, be in the final stages of all the competitions we're in so you know I, I think it's one of them where you you do you do expect to get a return for your money and that is not unfair you sh- you should Of course, you showed it's 97 million quid. It's not 10 million or a a risky free with a guy coming towards the end of his career. You've spent 100 million quid basically on a 28 year old in his prime and you expect him to step up. So, you know, he'll know that as well and, you know, he'll know all the the pressures it comes with. He knows what the press are like in in England, but he fancies it again. he's, he's, He's that type of character where he probably feels like he's got unfinished business in the Premier League and. You know he's he's come back for the challenge to to silence some haters and to to uh, to shut some people up and you know fair play to him for for having that outlook on things because he could have easily said well England doesn't appreciate me I'll 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 stay here um or I'll go to Spain on a, on a free in a couple of years time or something like that but you know nobody else can afford players at the minute if you are going to move in a in an elite. Um, sort of circle, you're only going to come to the Premier League or go to PSG because they're the only ones that can afford you. And obviously PSG have done other things this summer, which which count them out. So he was always going to come back to the Premier League, if anywhere. And Chelsea have stepped up and they'll pin them hopes on him again. But you can't have any complaints about that. You can't you can't be like, well, other team, other players have got to pull their weight because at the end of the day, you you cost twice as much money as Timo Werner, so. You know, you should score twice as many goals and it shouldn't be hard when Werner can, you know, score seven goals a season and get offside about 38 times. So, (laughs) you know what I mean? I think it's easy to say, looking at the Manchester United transfer,
1: that he isn't a man that copes with pressure after United spent 75 million quid on him and it didn't quite work out there. But I think that is... I just don't think that's true by any measure and I have seen some people say that but he, I mean, 28 million quid for a 21 year old or whatever it is when he went to Everton that would have put a certain amount of pressure on him and he thrived onto that moving to Inter Milan after it didn't quite work out at Manchester United that would have put pressure on him and it, and, and it didn't seem to affect him there I think there were other issues at play during his time at Manchester United we know now he had some kind of stomach issue going on which would have affected his game play whether he was mentally in the right place we don't know whether the style necessarily to to them, that's debatable as well so I, I think the pressure that's on him now with this transfer and as Marley calls, him having that point to prove, almost that unfinished business, not just in the Premier League but with Chelsea as well I think that's going to really be an added impetus, an added motivation for this season rather than necessarily pressure that he'll wilt under
2: well Romelu Lukaku I'm excited to see how he does and we touched upon this on Monday's podcast as well Lukaku is a beast of a player at the best of times but when he's got a point to prove you know that is a fearsome thing when you're coming up against him so I'm excited to see how he fares back at Stamford Bridge 97 million pounds West Ham also lots of excitement and positivity there after their campaign last season but rumbling away in the background talks of a takeover we'll do it next on Football Social Daily
0: football's social daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk football's social daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode
2: Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast from Sports Social. If you hit subscribe or follow or whatever it may be on whichever podcast platform you use to listen to shows, then that way you won't miss an episode again. As we say, brand new shows every single day of the campaign. Now, West Ham United were the dark horses of last season's Premier League, finishing just outside of the top four. They were in the top four for a large period and they'll be playing European football again this season. A great positive... Campaign for West Ham fans who have suffered a fair bit over recent seasons. Moving away from the bowling ground to the London Stadium was a move that certainly turned a few heads. So, it's plenty of controversy linked with that. And also, the ownership has come under a fair bit of scrutiny over the years. Now, something that hasn't been particularly widely reported but is allegedly true is that an offer has come in to buy the club which meets the valuation set by the current owners, which are, of course, Gold and Sullivan. This Offer has come in from a group known as the PIA Investment Group. They have had uh, associations with Queen's Park Rangers, the championship club in London in the past. However, West Ham's current owners say that this isn't true, that an offer hasn't come in and it hasn't matched the valuation. So it's all a bit up in the air at the moment, Jim. I was just wondering if you could help shed some light on this as a West Ham fan, because... You know, regardless of whether a bid has come in or hasn't come in and whether it meets the valuation and whether it doesn't is irrelevant to me. Because even if you stump up more than what the owners are asking for, if they don't want to sell, then they just won't sell. And surely that's the crux of the matter, is it not?
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, ultimately, it does come down to that. But it's been a really strange situation, this takeover bid. It's been rumbling on since around February time, I think, in terms of this group coming in and saying that they have made an offer and it has been rejected by golden sullivan despite it meeting their valuation and then they've bought in kind of ex-players to support the bid and they've supposedly put in proposals to the government in terms of what they would do with the london stadium it just seems very very strange and i think the whole idea of golden sullivan do they want to sell don't they want to sell is probably at the centre of that because they've always claimed that if their valuation of the club was met, they would be happy to sell the club. Now, here you've got a group coming in and saying in PAI, PAI saying, we have met this valuation, we have offered a fair deal and we have presented proof of funds. And then you've got Golden Sullivan still saying, no, they haven't, this hasn't happened. La la la, we're not listening to you. So it's difficult to believe who is playing with a straight bat in this scenario and the kind of my gut instinct is neither are 100% telling the truth but you're right at the end of the day it comes down to you can't sell a car or you can't buy a car if the owner doesn't want to sell and it's the same with a football club if golden sullivan aren't willing to part with the club if they see a future there then they're not going to accept any offer for it no matter how big it is the weird thing for me and what it all comes down to and i think a lot of west ham fans would agree with this if Golden Sullivan do want to maintain ownership of West Ham United as a football team, and they do want to develop the club, and they do want to live up to the promises that they made to fans when we left Upton Park in terms of being one of the best teams in European football, of being regulars in the top four, etc., etc., etc then they need need to prove that, they need to back that, because I think that's where the frustration comes from and why a lot of fans are jumping on this PAI takeover bid and going, we want this to happen, even though there's very scant details, is because they're so fed up with the regime of Golden Sullivan and the continued lack of delivery on these promises.
2: After the season that West Ham have just had and after the criticism that they've been subjected to, Surely they'd want to sort of revel in the success that West Ham are having at the moment, finishing in the European places, and they probably want to reap the rewards that they feel that they deserve from overseeing the club over the last few seasons. Stock in West Ham United seems to be at a high at the moment. So, you know, that kind of lends itself to selling when your stock's high, but at the same time, it feels like these current owners, being that they are involved in West Ham emotionally as well as they are uh, financially, that they kind of want to reap those benefits and kind of wallow in those successes.
1: It's very difficult to know what they want to achieve out of their ownership of the club because you... Yeah as as West Ham fans I agree with you you'd think they'd want to be associated with the club during one of the what could be one of the most successful seasons the club has ever had but it isn't looking that way it's looking like it could go completely the other way and from what we hear what has been reported West Ham financially are in an absolute mess post pandemic and I think there was some Italian media media claiming that the club was close to bankruptcy At one point over the last 12 months. So if you were in that situation, if you were the chairman of a club who is teetering on the brink, and certainly with the transfer activity the club have had over this window, it would suggest they aren't in the rudest of health. Why would you hang on to it? If you're a fan of the club, why would you potentially gamble with its future by not accepting an offer that could secure the future of the club? So... What the aims of Gold and Sullivan want to do with the club, I think that's one of the big concerns and one of the big question marks because nobody really knows what they want to do. Do they want to build a football club? Do they want to build one of the best teams in Europe? Do they want to stick by their exit strategy, whatever that is? There's rumours that if they hold on to the club till 2023, I think it is, that reduces certain tax liabilities when they depart which would obviously increase the money they take out of the club at that point so are they waiting to that point it's it's really murky and it's really strange and I think part of the issue is there has been no clear communication from the board as to what their intentions in is other than saying no this bid doesn't exist when PAI are clearly suggesting that it, it does exist and they have made an offer and it's just a really dark and murky situation in terms of this takeover bid, it's been
2: backed, Marley, by Rio and-, and Tom Ferdinand. Of course, both East End lads who supported West Ham and even played for West Ham for a time, both of them. In terms of bids being backed by players, is it just all a PR exercise? Or is it legitimate that the Ferdinands have the best interests of West Ham at heart? And that's not me questioning their dedication towards the cause and their passion for West Ham United but you often see Rio Ferdinand talking about Manchester United on the TV as we and just to bring it back to a more recent event we saw Arsenal subjected to takeover bids from the founder of Spotify Daniel Ek and that was backed by several ex-players including the current Crystal Palace manager Patrick Vieira Dennis Bergkamp was involved in that takeover Thierry Henry was involved in terms of giving his voice of approval for the takeover. So we've seen this before where players have come out and said, we back this takeover bid, but does it actually mean anything?
0: No, not at all. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's just paying someone basically to attach their name to it because, you know, businessmen know that, that they're sort of looked at through, you know, a, a microscope sort of thing and, and saying, well, why does this guy want to buy us? And then they attach, you know, a former player as a way of sort of getting the fans on board, thinking, well, if you know, if Real Ferdinand comes in, then all the all the uh, West Ham fans will be happy with us. But realistically, um, Rio left West Ham to to better his career, and he would, is is basically, he's a businessman now. Any Real Ferdinand, he's not. He, yeah, he does a bit of punditry, but he's got his little cap business, um, which is why he won't say a bad word about Mike Ashley on on TV because he uh, he stocks his little hats in, in sports direct um <laughs> and yeah so he he's basically you know he's he's not uh he's not the most sort of trustworthy man uh realten and he's thinking about the cash you could accuse him of thinking about the cash in his playing career although it was obvious he had to leave West Ham to achieve his goals and he he made the right decision. However in his post playing career you know, he, he is chasing that dollar, um, and he, you know, he, he'll have been approached by these guys, and they've probably said, "We'll give you two million quid if you uh, if you publicly back this takeover and, and get involved. You'll probably be a silent partner at best. You know, you'll be um, a spokesman or a, a just a, a face." And he's gone. Well, that's an easy gig. Why wouldn't I accept that? Um, and fair play to him, but. You can't look at this and say, well, Rio, Rio cares about us if you're a West Ham fan. And to be fair to them, I don't think they will as well. I think they'll see through it. Um, you I know, don't think they are, Marley. Just... I think
1: that's part of the issue. I think there's a lot of West Ham fans that are so fed up with the current ownership that they would accept anything that's on the table at the moment. But for me, the big concern about you this... You've got
0: to be careful what you wish for, though, aren't you?
1: Yeah, and I, I think there's huge red flags about this potential bid, not least because it's... Includes Philip beard, who was the as you said now the chief executive at q p r and ultimately cost them the f f p uh punishment that saw them basically destroy the future of that football club because they overspent he was the man that oversaw that, which doesn't scream responsible ownership, but also because the whole approach has been hugely populist, so as you mentioned, rio Ferdinand Anson Ferdinand being bought in as West Ham boys who love the club so they've been bought in clearly being paid to do so the fact that the kind of details that have come out about their plans for the football club as well are really weird their focus has been on things like getting a statue outside the London Stadium of Hearst, Peters and Moore, which, yeah, great, brilliant, but that shouldn't be your primary concern when you're taking over a football club, that shouldn't be the thing you hang your hat on, we're going to stick a statue up outside it, and the fact the whole thing was announced in the first place by, do you remember Tom from The Apprentice, the guy who sold the mattresses, the Cockney guy was a West Ham fan? No, it wasn't, was it? It was announced by him, he's kind of been the public face, the public mouth of this takeover (laughs) bid. It's just uh, well. That, I that, just should, think be, when that said should be. You Tom the... from the Apprentice. There's the Apprentice has been on
2: for twenty years. There must have been so many <laughs> c- contestants called Tom. I <laughs> yeah, just have was, no idea that, who you're talking there was about.
1: In, there was Inventor Tom was as a, well, but he was the, like, he he was the latest prop- prop- one.
0: Like, like proper cockney geezer, any like proper yeah. bloke. But and he seemed like a lovely that bloke. Series, but... Well, this is this is the red flag. If you watched that series, he was criticised for being too enthusiastic about things that were crap. So he so like. Alan Sugar was like, he's a fantastic salesman, and that's that's great. But also, if you give him, you know, a piece of, he'd roll it in glitter and try and sell it to someone who would, you know. But it's still just something that you ultimately don't want. That's what West um, and Ham do their signings. <laughs> well, that that is basically this takeover, isn't it? It's it's them. It's you know, if he's there backing it, and Rio Ferdinand's there backing it it doesn't mean anything. It just means they're getting paid a wedge to uh, to support it. So. so what's
2: going on then, Jim? Are the owners coming up with excuses as to why they don't want to sell or are they being double bluffed? Are they saying that, you know, that, that, that we want this valuation and actually they've been taken aback by the fact someone's met it and now they're coming up with excuses? How does it sit with you? And secondly, what do fans want? What do you want? What do you think the best outcome is?
1: Well, firstly, um, I don't think West Ham do... Buy and roll it in gold in terms of their transfer strategy. I think they buy gold and roll it in, and then sell it at the value of. Shit. That seems to be the way they approach the transfer market. But in terms of what's actually happening under the bonnet of this deal, it's one man's word against the other at the moment. There is no proof of correspondence. There is no proof of funds that's been released publicly. You wouldn't expect it to be, to be fair. And there are accusations that actually the takeover move from PAI Capital is pretty much a property deal. They're interested in the London Stadium as something that they can potentially have ownership of in the future rather than actually an interest in the football club. As for Golden Sullivan denying they have had a bid and there has been any proof of funds, they've also said in addition to that if they were going to sell the club they wouldn't sell it to this particular group which again... If there was any future in this deal, it feels like a really strange action from their point of view. So, I mean, I guess the question is, if PAI Capital aren't genuinely interested in the football club and haven't made an offer, then what is the purpose of them making these noises and these public statements? So I think there has been some kind of offer. Uh, Whether it meets the valuation or not, I don't know. I've always thought the valuation that Golden Sullivan put on West Ham was much higher than it should be. I think they valued it at five six 600 million quid, which is a huge amount for a football club that hasn't done a great deal over the last few years, albeit the fact they have this long-term residency at a brilliant athletic stadium. Yeah, I mean, it's not um, like you get the stadium in that deal, is it? <laughs>
0: it's just... Well,
1: it's, I mean, it's, it's a Take lease. over it's the a, lease, I, yeah. It's a, it's a 98-year lease at £5 million a year, so Jesus it's Christ. pretty lucrative. But you, you don't get any of the fringe benefits of that so you don't make any revenue from the NFL playing there or from Britney Spears playing there or whatever it might be in the future which I think would be their long term aim would be to buy the stadium which is a huge tax burden on the government and the, uh, and the Olympic Committee or whatever they're called at the moment they, they, I think that ideally they'd like to get rid of that stadium if they mm. could sell it for a fair value So what do kind you of want a no smoke Jim? without fire scenario What do you I, want as a West Ham fan what's your ideal outcome for this? This deal doesn't feel right for me I think it's not. A, a consortiums always worry me for a start because there's too many people with too much vested interest and too many different conflicting views on how a club should move forward. So that's a red flag for me. I think the fact that West Ham fans want someone who will invest in this football club in terms of the playing staff and personnel, I don't think that would happen with a PAI I don't think that is at the heart of what they want so I think actually genuinely it is a bit of a better the devil you know scenario at the moment I don't like Golden Sullivan I don't think they're running the football club properly they're certainly not bankrolling it and moving it forward in the correct way and and taking advantage of the opportunity and you only have to look at the playing squad at the moment and the transfers that have been made and how threadbare that team is going into this season to realise that but I wouldn't want to take this deal out of the desperation to get rid of Gold, Brady and Sullivan. I think that would be the wrong move at this step because it feels too populist. It feels like it lacks substance and it feels like something that is being conducted or should be conducted in private is being conducted in public in order to get this kind of swell of opinion from West Ham fans who are desperate to get rid of the current regime.
2: Yeah, it's certainly an interesting one and we'll keep following it with a close eye here on Football Social Daily. I wonder how West Ham will get on this season on the pitch. I suppose in terms of forward players, you are banking on the never injured, always fit Mikhail Antonio to lead the line again for another <laughs> season.
1: But we'll see how that goes, of course. Just on that, just on the West Ham recruitment this season, I think it's worth pointing out. Everyone's saying how threadbare West Ham's squad is this season and it is incredibly thin on the ground. One player bought in so far. It only occurred to me last night that potentially we're going to lose three players for the African Cup of Nations as well. So Artur uh Ben Rama and uh, someone else whose name escapes me at the moment. But there's three players that potentially leave us for the African Cup of Nations. So not only have we got a Europa League campaign and a Premier League campaign to compete with, three players are out of that very thin, I think it's 20 first team players we've got. It might even be less than that team for a large portion of the season so i keep on saying west ham could get relegated this season i think it's a very real opportunity it's a very real uh scenario at the that moment that would be so maybe, the most west ham thing to yeah.
2: almost finish in the champions league one season and the next season go down that would just so maybe be Gold, maybe,
1: maybe golden sullivan should take the deal before we get
2: relegated <laughs> yeah. cash in now boys i tell you what, you mentioned Arthur Masuaki there. I love that video of him leaning out the car window, not understanding the East End accent, thinking, thinking, <laughs> thinking that a woman was saying something totally different to what she was actually saying. I thought it was quite funny. Uh, that's it for today's Football Social Daily. The Premier League season starts tonight. Arsenal against Brentford. We'll have a match preview and match report on our website as we will for all Premier League games across the season and indeed this weekend. The website is sports-social.co.uk so go and check out that for the latest news on your club. And also our Premier League preview show kicks off tomorrow where I'll be joined by Michelle Owen and Pete Hall running the rule over the weekend's Premier League action on opening Saturday and Sunday of the season. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you, Marley. That's it for today's show. We'll catch you again next time on Football Social Daily.
0: Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.